You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Glad that you're here with us today. Uh, my name is uh, Brett, for those of you that I don't know. Um, and I have the opportunity today just to lead us through uh, the next section in the book of Judges. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you just to open it up to the book of Judges. We're going to be looking at uh, chapters 11 and 12 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, just pop up your hand. We've got some ushers that are coming down the aisles right now. They'd be glad to get a copy of God's Word in your hand so that you can follow along. And if you don't have a Bible at home, take it with you. That's our gift to you. We would be so glad for you to take it and be able to meet with the Lord daily through His Word. So Judges today, uh, chapters 11 and 12. And we have been in a series uh, called Broken Heroes. And we've been looking at the different judges that were given to Israel during... Uh, the time after they journeyed out of the wilderness, after they left Egypt, come out of the wilderness, come into the promised land, but before there was any king in the land. And we've looked at a number of the judges so far, and some of them have been better, some maybe a little worse. They've all had flaws, we could say. And today, the judge that we are going to look at this morning, Jephthah, is no exception to that. Um, he is definitely a man of faith, but also a man of flaws, and we are going to look at both of those today. I'm, I'm honestly just not gonna try to white, whitewash any of this for you. Um, there may be a little bit of, wow, is that really in the Bible uh, this morning? Um, what, do we, what do we do with that? I know uh, this morning, or as I came to this passage this week, and I knew ahead that I was gonna be preaching on Jephthah, and I kinda thought, that's, that's a tough one, it'll be interesting. And uh, as I came to it, I was like, oh no. I'm not sure where to go with this exactly. And so I thought for a few moments last week, maybe like last Sunday, I thought maybe I'd take the Hebrews 11.32 route, uh, which is, you know, time would fail me to tell of Jephthah. Let's sing another song or two and then uh, be on our way home. And then I realized um, graciously through a few people sharing with me and reminding me that every single word of God's word is inspired that it's profitable, um, it's profitable for our correction, for our teaching, for reproof and training in righteousness. And this passage is no exception. It's not in the Bible by accident. God put it here for a specific reason. And to be honest, there's a lot that we can learn from it, both from Jephthah, Jephthah's good example, but then also from where he dropped the ball, where he failed. And so we're going to look at that this morning. Uh, the title of this morning's message is The Legacy of an Outcast Hero. And to be honest, it's a mixed legacy uh, when we look at Jephthah. And uh, Jephthah, as you gathered from the title, he was an outcast. And we see that right, right away, right out of the gate, um, right here in chapter 11. And so what we're going to do today is we are going to, uh, I'm going to summarize. I'm going to read a little bit in chapter 11, 11 and then summarize a chunk and then we're going to dig in near the end of chapter 11, and then we're going to come back and touch on chapter 12, okay? So let's just look right now at chapter 11. We're going to look at the first four verses to get a little flavor of who this uh, Jephthah guy is. We'll call him uh, Jeff for short this morning. Isn't it kind of funny that we have a lot of Jeffs spelled with an F, but we don't see any Jeffs with a PH in our society, do we? Right? You know, some Bible names really catch on well, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Any Jephthahs wandering around this morning? Didn't think so. All right. Okay, well, let's read here. Verse, chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. He was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove out Jephthah and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So we've got this guy, Jephthah here, who 
He grows up in the land of Gilead. He um, is an illegitimate child, okay? He's not uh, the child of the mother of the house, uh, but the son of a prostitute. And when the other children of the house become older and growing up, they throw him out. They cast him out of the house. And Jephthah doesn't just move down the street and get a place of his own. He actually moves entirely out of the land. He moves out of the nation of Israel uh, to this area, this place called Tob. Um, commentators suspect that this is kind of in Syria, on the edge of Syria, somewhere where exactly we're not positive, okay, but it's outside of Israel. So he totally heads out to a different place to live there. Now, Jephthah, this wasn't just his choice. He was driven out in his early years, and Jephthah didn't really have uh, maybe the greatest start in life. He didn't have the easiest upbringing, the easiest childhood, okay? He's, he's tossed out of the land here. And as he gets to this place of Tob, he surrounds himself with worthless fellows, okay? That's kind of an interesting phrase. Um, we see that a few times in the book of Judges. Uh, but these worthless fellows, that, that's kind of a comment to say he, he collects a bunch of kind of bad guy goons around him, okay? And, and possibly even gets involved in some shady business, all right? Let's just say that. Um, some commentators suspect that Jephthah kind of made his living through organized crime, almost, okay? I don't know. I wasn't there. All that I know is that when the Bible says that he collected worthless fellows around himself, it's not a good thing, okay? So Jephthah, as a potential judge, does not start out very well. We can agree with that, can't we? Okay? But, but God's going to do something here. That's pretty exciting. That's pretty awesome. And so many years later, the tables begin to turn. The Ammonites start coming against the people of Israel. And there's, there's threats, there's, uh, they're, they're doing raids and all of these different things, and they start pressing hard against Israel. Well, believe it or not, the guys that kicked Jephthah out a number of years ago, they come back seeking his help. And so they, they come to him, and they send a delegation to him to come back and to be their leader and to lead them in battle. That's very interesting. When they come to him the first time, Jephthah says, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not coming back to save your skin now. I wasn't good enough for you before. I'm not coming now. And then as they dialogue together, they say, well, we will make you the head of Gilead. And he says, okay, I'll come back then. Now, it's really interesting to note here that this is exactly the same as what happened with God in chapter 10, okay? Just catch the parallel here, okay? This is, I don't, I don't want us to get hung up on this, but I do want us to see it. What happened with Jephthah here is exactly what the Israelites did to God in chapter 10. The Israelites, you'll remember the cycle of judges, is they follow the Lord, they sin, and then they go into a season of apostasy where they walk away from the Lord and then they are enslaved and then they return to the Lord. Well, that's what Israel did in chapter 10. They rejected God. They turned away from him. They essentially threw him out of the land, said, you're no longer welcome here. But then when their enemies pressed in hard on them, what did they do? They ran back to God and they said, save us. And what did God say immediately in chapter 10? Well, if you're here last week, you will see that God said, no, I'm not saving you. Because all that you're going to do is you're going to accept my freedom that I give you, and then you're going to turn your back on me and chase after your idols again. And they say, no, we'll really turn to you this time. And they, they really, truly repent, and they turn to the Lord, and the Lord shows mercy on them. Isn't this an interesting parallel? Okay? What's happening here is God is giving the people of Israel a living example of what they are doing to him in the person of Jephthah. He's saying, Look at it. This is what you're doing continually to me. So finally, Jephthah decides to go back. Um, he decides to return when they offer to make him the ruler of Gilead. And so Jephthah goes back. He goes back. And now Jephthah, at this point, he hasn't had a great start, okay? And he's older, okay? We, we're not positive how old, but likely a late 40s at least, probably 50, somewhere in there. He spent most of his life in this land of Tob with these worthless fellows. But I just want you to get this. This is the first thing that we need to see just to set things up this morning. First thing we need to catch is that it's never too late in our life. It's never too late to serve the Lord. It's never too late. No matter how life starts out, no matter what track we get on, no matter how we're brought up in the beginning, no matter whether we had a great start or a rough start, it's never too late to serve the Lord. Maybe you're here this morning and you know, you're, you're getting on in years and you feel like, I haven't really ever done anything for the Lord in my life. Just let these words stick in your heart this morning. It's never too late 
to serve the Lord. The Lord can take your life right now if you'll submit it to him in faith, if you'll give it to him in faith. He can take it and he can use it for his glory in an awesome way. God can still do incredible things in your life through you. And in this passage, as we're going to see, God does do some incredible things through the leadership of Jephthah. He sets the people of Gilead free from those who are attempting to enslave them. But here's the other thing that we need to see right here is that faith, faith requires action. We see this all through the book of Judges. Every single judge in the book of Judges was a person of action. Their faith actually moved them forward to do things for the Lord. They didn't just sit still in their faith. Now, I just want you to think about this for a second. Every single person in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, you know, we've got Abraham, we've got Sarah, we've got, you know, these giants of the faith, Moses, and then the judges, Gideon, and Barak, and Samson, and even Jephthah, all of these people, their faith moved them forward for God. They did things for God and for his glory and his kingdom. So it's never too late to serve the Lord. But faith causes us to move forward in action. We just, we need to get that as we understand this passage and what's going on here in it. Now, I want you to think about this, though. Jephthah is, is a man that's been cast out of the land. He's being invited back, and he comes back as kind of the, I don't know, almost the, the test ruler of the people of Gilead. It's, it's not certain whether he's going to fully be embraced as the ruler at this point or not. It kind of depends on how things go, it seems like. Now, now check this out. Okay, so Jephthah comes back. He's not in a full position of authority yet. And we see this down in uh, chapter 11, verses 12 through 28. Okay, he comes back and he begins to attempt the diplomatic route with the Ammonites. Okay, so the Ammonites have, have said to the people of Israel, you stole our land. That's what they said. When you guys came up from Egypt, you came through, you stole our land. It belongs to us. Give it back or we're coming to get you. That's what they said. Jephthah goes back in the history books and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not how it went down actually at all. We didn't steal your land. Um, the Ammonites, they lost their land from the Amorites. The Amorites came in and took their land. And then we battled with the Amorites and that land became our land. It wasn't your land anyway. And so he tries the diplomatic route. He, he attempts to negotiate and explain and reconcile. But when all of this fails, then he sees that he's going to end up in battle with the Ammonite people. And so I want to pick this up in uh, verse 29 of Judges chapter 11. And I want to read there. And I want to see what happens as Jephthah prepares for battle. This is where we're going to spend the bulk of the message um, is in point two, because there's a fair bit to wrestle with here, but there's also a lot of application for our own lives that we can draw out. Um, so we're going to spend the bulk of our time there, but let's just kind of walk through this together. And we'll start right here, chapter 11, verse 29, and read down to 35. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Notice that. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. God had anointed Jephthah for a specific task. He was the chosen person that God was going to use to bring freedom. The spirit of the Lord was upon him to empower him. And as he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aor to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, as far as Abel Karim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah, came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes, and he said, Alas, my daughter, why have you brought me very low? And you have become the cause of great trouble for me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord and cannot take back my vow." Here's the second thing that we need to see, and I think it'll be obvious after reading that passage. The second thing this morning that we need to see is this right here, that we need to be careful. We need to be careful with our commitments. 
We need to be careful with our commitments. I just want you to think about what we just read right there. And, and Jeff, and we're going to spend a little bit of time here because there's a bit to wrestle with. And I want you just to think about this thought um, right now as we, as we say that we need to be careful with our commitments. Are you? Are you careful with the things that you commit to? When you give someone your word, when you promise something, when you say, oh yeah, I will do that to help you, or I, I promise I will do this, are you a person of integrity with your word? Do you keep your word? Now, I think Jephthah understood the importance of commitment. I think that um, when he made a vow to the Lord, he took it very seriously. We're going to see that. But I think sometimes we can kind of play fast and loose with our commitments, can't we? We can kind of be like, yeah, I, you know, I, I know I said that like when you needed help moving, talk to me and I'd be glad to help you, but that was like two months ago and I've got busy since then and you probably don't fully remember anyway and if you do, well, it wasn't like I totally promised to kind of have my fingers behind my back or, you know, it, it was kind of conditional. Do we do that sometimes? I think we do. I think I do. I think I will sometimes say things and then, and then when I can't follow up on it, I think sometimes I will give someone my word and um, not be able to back it up, not be able to follow through on it and then I'm actually being deceptive or lying to them. And I think we just need to guard ourselves here. Here's the first thing that we need to see as we think about this. First of all, we always need to be careful to keep our word. Okay, we need to be careful with our commitments. We always need to be careful to keep our word. When we give someone our word, when we say, I will do this for you, or I will do this with you, or I will help you in this, if we say that, we need to be a person of integrity, a person of our word. I think Jephthah got this, but I also think that we see something here in Jephthah that, that he was a little bit impulsive, a little bit too quick to give his word to people. But honestly, today in our society, it's very easy, isn't it, to walk away from our commitments. You know, the commitments that we have made, it's so easy to walk away and distance ourselves from those. Just think about this maybe in, you know, your workplace. In your workplace right now, you know, you, you said, oh yeah, I will do this and I will do that to your boss so that you would look favorably in your boss's eyes and, and, they, and that boss would then give you a promotion. But maybe you didn't really have full intention of doing those things and following through on those things long term. Well, that's not being a person of your word. That's not being a person of integrity. Or maybe it's with friends where you've promised something and then not delivered only to leave them disappointed. Or maybe you... You would maybe do this at church. We'd never do this at church, would we? Never. Maybe at church, though. Maybe you'd say, you know, in the foyer, when somebody shares something really big with you, you'd say, you know what, I'll pray for you in that. With no real intention of praying for them, not writing it down anywhere. You know, not praying for them right there on the spot. I, I love it. I love the person, you know, in our church, whenever you say, you share something with them and you say, you know, would you pray for me in that? And they say, can I pray for you right now? I'll pray for you later, but can I pray right now? I just love that. Love the heart of that person that is the person that wants to pray right there in the minute, you know, because prayer is not something that we just do later. It's something that we do right in the here and now. But let's not say, hey, we're going to pray for you or we're going to help you with this if we don't intend to follow through on that. Maybe, you know, it's the commitment that you made if you're in a small group to your small group that, you know, you signed that piece of paper, that small group commitment, and you gave your word and you had good intentions, but since then, you know, life's got busy and all of everything else has flooded in and you've just backed off on your commitment, but you've never really talked it out with your leaders and you just kind of are backing away a little bit. Or maybe it's even more serious than that. Maybe, you know, it's your marriage. Maybe you're not following through on the commitments that you've made to your spouse, your wedding vows. You know, we don't use the word vows a lot in our society today, but we do still have wedding vows, which is a commitment before God and his people to your spouse. And, you know, think about that. Think about the promises that you made to your spouse on your wedding day. Are you actively seeking to live those things out each day? Can you even remember what they are? If you can't remember what they are, today's a great day to go home this afternoon, get out that old photo album that you have, find those old vows, read them over, and even freshly in your heart, recommit to those things. Why? Because God takes these things seriously in our lives. God takes our commitments seriously. We should also then take our commitments seriously. And Jephthah's a guy that takes his commitments seriously, but, but I also want you to notice this. Second um, point B here, we need to be careful not to make impulsive decisions. Jephthah makes an impulsive decision here. Can we agree with that? 
Yeah, I think so. Okay, he's on the edge of the battle. He's getting ready to go against the Ammonites and he feels, I gotta put something really big in the bank to get God on my side on this one. I think that's Jephthah's underlying theology here. I think he's trying to earn God's favor as you read the text and I would encourage you this afternoon, go home, read through this passage and see it for yourself. But I think he's trying to really earn God's favor and he makes an impulsive decision. He makes an impulsive decision. Now are we like that? Do we make impulsive decisions, impulsive commitments? Something that we know we can't back up, something that we know we can't carry out. Um, we always say to our boys, hey, listen, we have two boys. Um, we have William, who's 10, and Charlie, who's seven. And we always say to them, listen, boys, don't bite off more than you can chew. Don't bite off more than you can chew. And you know, they're kind of at that stage where they're learning to fully cut up their own food. Like if you have steak or something, you cut it a little bit for them and they try to finish it off, right? Um, Charlie's kind of go-to method is just to stab the piece of steak and then like pull it up and chew on it. And we're like, no, it doesn't work that way. You put it down, cut it up. And so while you're in the process, okay, uh, while you're in the process of saying, no, we don't do it that way, he'll shove the whole thing in his mouth, right? And what's he do? Then he tries to chew it up and it just doesn't work, right? So don't bite off more than you can chew. But we, we try to teach them that uh, just in regards to life. Are we people that make impulsive commitments, that bite off more than we can chew and, and get ourselves in way over our heads without honestly and genuinely, before we make the commitment, going to the Lord and saying, Lord, would it honor you if I took this on? Lord, would it honor you if I moved into this other area of ministry and then was you know, away from uh, my family more or if I was moved into this, even this other area of ministry and I wasn't able to do the things that you've called me to as well or to pay as much attention to those or Lord, would it even honor you if I took on a second job so that we could afford a bigger and better house but then I was away from my family four or five nights a week, would that honor you, God? You know, in the flesh, these things seem clear, don't they? But when we actually put them before the Lord, all of a sudden the Lord shines his light on it and then there's a different clarity. We see a different picture. And we need to be a people that submit everything to the Lord for his wisdom, his guidance, his direction. We need to not be a people that are presumptuous, that assume we know what God wants without consulting what God has said. Now Jephthah, I really think if we look into this passage and we look at it closely, Jephthah has some bad theology here. Jephthah's underlying theology seems to be that if I sacrifice a lot for God, I can earn his favor, and then I can earn God's favor, and then I can live out of that favor that I've earned. And so Jephthah puts it all on the line on the eve of battle, and he says to the Lord, whatever comes out of my house, whenever I return from the Ammonites in peace, I will sacrifice to the Lord. I will give it to the Lord or sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So Jephthah really ups the game here. Now what Jephthah means by this vow exactly is a little bit unclear. And how it's carried out is maybe even more unclear in the text. We're going to get there in just a second. Um, but I just want to hit on one thing, first of all. Why would Jephthah, why would he make a commitment like this? Just answer this question. Did God prompt Jephthah to make this vow? Did God come to Jephthah and say, hey, Jephthah, listen, if you want me to really fight for you in this battle, you're going to have to up the ante a little bit. You're going to have to offer something big here. Did God do that? No, good, one no, okay, one no, that's right. No, he didn't do that. God did not prompt Jephthah to make this rash vow to him, to, to offer this. And so where is this even coming from? And I think that we can land on this. This is ultimately, it's the sin of presumption going on in Jephthah's life here. It's pride in a way. It's presumption. He assumes that he knows what God wants or thinks on the subject without consulting what God has actually said on the subject. Do we do that? Are we like that? Do we run ahead assuming that we know what God thinks or has said, and maybe we've got one Bible verse that would go along with us that's out of context, and we think we know what God says, but we really don't search his word, we really don't go to him and, and really look closely at it, and this is what's happening with Jephthah. And so Jephthah makes this vow to sacrifice whatever comes out of the doors of his house when he returns home. And when Jephthah returns home, what comes out of the doors of his house is his daughter, his only daughter. Now this grieves Jephthah. It grieves his daughter as well. 
And there's one thing that we really need to know right here. God did not prompt Jephthah to do this. God, um, I don't believe, has any delight in this vow that Jephthah has made at all. Okay, and the first thing that we need to remember right here as we look at this passage is that in the Old Testament, human sacrifice is always condemned. There is no proof text that you could go to in the Old Testament to say that God really wants me to sacrifice my daughter. Now, I'm not saying that's what Jephthah did. We're going to unpack that in just a second and see what actually happens here. But, But do you get the tension here of what's going on? Where's Jephthah getting this from? I think it's the sin of a misguided theology, the sin of assuming what God wants without actually truly asking him or seeking him. Let's take a look down. Let's go down to verse 36 and let's read there, verse 36 through 40. And so when Jephthah returns home and his daughter comes out and he's grieved, she responds to him and and right here, verse 36, and she said to him, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged your enemies on the, or avenged you on your enemies, the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. And he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to the vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became the custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament for the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Okay, this is a hard chunk of scripture to get our minds around. It's a hard passage. It's one of those passages that that you read it and you're like, is that, is that really truly in the Bible? But it's also one of those passages that you're like, what really exactly happened there? I just wanna lay this out, okay? It's, it's, very, it's, it's unclear based on the text what Jephthah actually does with his daughter. It's very clear that Jephthah makes a rash, impulsive vow. Can we agree on that? Is that a yes? Yes, he definitely does. It's very clear, it's a rash, impulsive vow. But how this vow is actually then fulfilled is open to a few questions. Now, um, just, just gonna say that on this passage, okay, I've probably read more commentaries than I've ever read for any passage in my entire life, and they were not helpful. <laughs> because I'd read one that would say this, and then I'd read another one that would say this. They all basically landed on two sides, okay? There's basically two views of this passage, just two views, there's not three or four or five. Um, some people that are kind of a little bit out there said, well, Jephthah was expecting an animal to come out of his house when he returned home. Um, That's kind of actually dismantled just by the text itself that says, no, probably wasn't expecting an animal just because of the words that he chose, come out the door of my house, come to greet me. Okay, that's that's kind of unlikely. Um, But what's actually happening here, there's basically two views. There's two views. The first view is that Jephthah actually had in mind human sacrifice. And that's what actually happened. The second view is that Jephthah didn't have human sacrifice in mind at all, um, but he was actually committing uh, this person to the Lord. His daughter, okay, for example, would be committed to the Lord as a perpetual virgin who would serve the Lord for all of her days. Okay, do we understand that? Two views on this. Now, here's the hard part. There's amazing evidence for both views. It's basically 50-50, and, and I honestly, after studying it, think that the Lord has left this ambiguous for us so that we really wouldn't necessarily know the answer because no matter which answer it is, the outcome is still the same. The application is still the same. The application is simply this. Don't make rash vows. Don't give your word without going to the Lord first. Seek his face first. That's the application for us. But let's just kind of look at this a little bit um, before we, we move on past it, Okay. Those who would land on the side that Jephthah actually sacrificed his daughter to the Lord would say a couple of things. They would say, well, first of all, okay, the word of the Lord was scarce in the time of the judges. Okay, they, they didn't have uh, copies of God's word floating around everywhere. They didn't have people teaching the Bible. They would have only had the Torah, the first five books, and, and it wasn't well circulated. The second thing they would say is that culture had infringed in on the people so much that it's very, very likely that Jephthah's worldview had been slanted and tilted and his theology seriously misguided. 
Now, I think that those elements are true, but I don't think that necessarily means that he did sacrifice his daughter as a burnt offering to the Lord. Why do I say that? Well, because the Old Testament clearly condemns human sacrifice. We're going to touch that in just a second. And I believe that Jephthah would have known that. Okay? Now, there's a few other things that add into this. If you just go back and you look at verses 30 through 31, just look down there in your Bible for a second. I want to point out two things there that hopefully will be helpful as we wrestle through this. Okay? Verse 30 through 31. There's, there's two key words in this passage that can be interpreted in different ways or translated in different ways. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then notice that word whatever. That word whatever can also mean whoever. So it could be whatever or whoever, okay? Comes out from, my, from the door of my house to meet me, or some might say greet me, okay? When I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and, how many, how many of our Bibles have the word and in it? Okay, a lot. Any have the word or. Okay, not, none that have the word or. Um, and, okay, in the Hebrew can also be translated or here. Okay, now notice how that would shift the meaning of what's actually happening here. Let me just read it the first way. Okay, then whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Well, if we read it that way, then that means that Jephthah's intention was definitely to sacrifice his daughter as a burnt offering. But notice the second reading, if it's translated or, okay, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, or I will offer it as a burnt offering. Okay, so a significant change here. Now, how you translate this word is, is a real challenge. That's why you have scholars and commentators on both sides of it. So I don't think that the answer is super clear for us here on which side we should land. I think it is highly um, possible that Jephthah's daughter was committed to the Lord as a virgin and remained in, his, in, in the Lord's service for her life. I think that would fit well with her mourning over her virginity. Notice that she doesn't mourn over her death, her death that is coming. She mourns over the fact that she is a virgin and going to be a virgin for the rest of her life. And what that actually means in the context, okay, is not just that she's not going to get married. That actually means that she's not going to have children. She's mourning over the fact that that is essentially the end of the line of the house of Jephthah because she will never have children. So I think it could go either way. Uh, you study it for yourself, see where you land. I also think it could go the other way because what we see here in the book of Judges, and I don't want to dwell on this too long, but I'll just say this, what we see in the book of Judges is we see a downward spiral where every time the nation of Israel turns against the Lord, it gets worse and worse. Their conscience becomes more seared, their worldview becomes more slanted and more tilted, um, and the culture around them presses in and influences even their theology. Now, the culture of child sacrifice was around Israel at this time. The two primary uh, people groups that practiced child sacrifice regularly were the Canaanites and the Ammonites. The Ammonites are who they were just fighting against, okay? So the Canaanites and the Ammonites. But the Bible actually has a lot to say about human sacrifice. And it's not going too far to say that God absolutely hates the idea of human sacrifice, that it is absolutely detestable and abhorrent and absolutely evil. I want you to notice the words here of Leviticus chapter 20, verses one through five. They're up on the screen. Um, this is how strongly God feels about this, this pagan practice. He says this in Leviticus 20, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech. Now, Molech was a false deity of the Canaanites and the Ammonites. Um, it was a false god, and they actually had a very large steel statue of Molech, um, which was shaped like a man with a bull's head and his arms outstretched, and out of Molech's stomach, was, uh, there was, a, there was a, a chamber cut into his stomach and they would kindle a big fire in there and his arms would be outstretched and they would actually, when they sacrificed a child, put the child on the arms of Molech. Now, 
these pagan people would do this to appease the wrath of a God that they thought was against them. Wow. Just kind of step back from this for just a second and just had some great conversation around this. I'm just at the break with one of our elders and just think about this for a second. These people are attempting to appease the wrath of a God that they think is against them. Isn't the gospel awesome? We're gonna talk more about the gospel at the end about what Jesus Christ has done for us. But, But he is the satisfying sacrifice. He is the one that took the full weight of God's wrath that we deserve because of our sin. And and he took it all. And he gives us freedom and he gives us grace. Now think about this right here, that these people would actually sacrifice children to Molech. Notice what it says right here in the text. It says in this passage, that anyone who gives their children to Molech shall surely be put to death. Okay, this is how strongly God feels about this. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself, God says, will set my face against this man and cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land at all close their eyes to that man and he gives one of his children to Molech and do not Uh, and they do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan, and I will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow in whoring after Molech. This is how strongly God feels about human sacrifice, okay? Why do I make this point? Let me just bring up on the screen right now a bunch of passages. There's a lot more passages than this one. We just saw Leviticus 20 verses one through five, but Deuteronomy goes on to say similar things. A Psalm 106 verse 37 actually tells us that when the people sacrificed their children, when it says that, they were actually sacrificing to demons, it says. It's demonic. It's demonic in its influence. In Jeremiah chapter seven, verse 31, and 19, five, and 32, 35, it says that this thought, this idea, didn't even enter into the mind of God. Well, why is this so important for us right now? We don't have a giant steel statue standing anywhere with a fire in its belly and its arms outstretched that we sacrifice children on, do we? This is not even relevant to us today. Well, it's absolutely relevant to us today. Um, Because in our culture today, Children are sacrificed every day. And God believes firmly in the, in the sanctity of human life because God has made every single human life in his image. Every single human life from conception till natural death is precious in God's sight, is loved by God and made in his likeness. Human life is in, in, um, inestimably valuable to God And we need to be concerned about this today, brothers and sisters. We need to be concerned that we don't have any giant metal statues standing around that we sacrifice children on today. How many children are sacrificed to the idol, to the false god, and on the altar of free choice and my preference and rights? These are things that we really need to think about and things that we need to take seriously because God takes them seriously. We need to be concerned about abortion, we need to be concerned about euthanasia, we need to be concerned about assisted suicide and preventable suicide. These are things that should grip our hearts because they grip God's heart, because they are things that are detestable to God, because God values human life, God loves people, and God wants to save all people, the word says so clearly. And so, you know, as you think about these things, and if you're wrestling right now with the the, the topic of abortion and not sure what scripture really has to say about it, just grab your phone, take a picture of that screen right there. Look up those verses. Abortion's maybe not mentioned by name, but, but ch- child sacrifice, human sacrifice is clearly talked about in each of those verses. We need to be concerned about this. But listen, as we look back at Jephthah and what's happening here, the crazy thing that I can't get my mind around with this passage is that Jephthah actually, if he would have known the Bible, he would have known that he had a way out on this, okay? If he would have understood the scripture, he would have known he had a way out. And that's why I say, I think Jephthah was in a lot of ways more influenced by his culture than he was by God's word. 
Now get that. I think Jephthah was more influenced by the culture around him than by God's word. Because if he would have really looked into the word of God, if he would have gone to a priest in the land and said, hey, listen, I've made a rash vow. I've committed whatever came out of my house. I didn't think it was going to be my daughter. I maybe thought it was going to be my mother-in-law. Um, just kidding. Just, just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, I love my mother-in-law. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> But if he would have gone to a priest, a priest would have said, you know what, I think the book of Leviticus actually deals with that and we can figure this out, okay? Um, and he, the, the priest would have gone to Leviticus chapter five, verses four through six, and listen to what it says. It says this, it deals with the exact situation Jephthah finds himself in. He says, or if anyone utters with his lips a rash, vow, a rash oath to do evil or to do good, or any sort of rash oath that the people swear, when he comes to know it, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation. It says, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for his sin. Listen, God gives a way out to Jephthah here, but Jephthah doesn't know about this or he doesn't take it. He, he goes through with the oath one way or another, whether he sacrifices his daughter as a burnt offering or commits her as a perpetual virgin. Either way, it grieves him and it grieves his family that he has made this rash vow. And in either case, the lesson for us should be exactly the same that we should be careful with our words, we should be careful with our promises. Before we commit anything, we should honestly take it before the Lord, seek the Lord's wisdom, seek his discernment, seek godly counsel, and then when we see that the Lord is leading in that direction and it's according to his word, then move ahead with it. We should never commit ourselves to anything that the Lord has said, don't do this. But listen, Jephthah, he goes on from here. Okay, he goes on from here, and as after this happens, okay, um, it turns out that the Ephraimites, okay, the, the people of the, of right around him, of uh, the tribe around him, so Gilead is a tribe uh, or a people of Ephraim, and the people around him, they come to him and they say, hey, why didn't you invite us to the battle? And Jephthah says, I did invite you to the battle. I went through the land. I invited you. You guys didn't come. And they want, they want part of the, the glory. They want part of the spoil now. And they say, no, you didn't. And Jephthah reacts here. And he just, you know, he doesn't try really as much with the diplomatic route as he did when he wasn't in control when the Ammonites came against him. You know, it, with the Ammonites, they went back and forth a number of times. With the Ephraimites, Jephthah's like, well, I did try. No, you didn't. Okay, let's go to battle. And they just like get up their dukes right away and they go after it right away. And this is pretty intense, actually, if you look at it. I want you to think about the first thing here. Jephthah here goes to battle, not against a foreign nation that is attempting to subdue them and make them slaves. He goes to battle against his own people, his brothers and sisters, his countrymen. He goes to battle against them. And I think that this section, Jephthah's I think he's excessive here. I think we can learn something from um, Jephthah using excessive force in this situation because he goes against Ephraim and Ephraim, there are 42,000 Ephraimites that are killed. Now that seems extreme to me. Maybe not, I, I don't know. It, all the blanks aren't fully filled in. Maybe I'm off in that and I'm open to be corrected in that. But nevertheless, we get this idea from Jephthah here that he was quick to be diplomatic when he wasn't in control, but as soon as he is in control, look out. And he unleashes his fury on the Ephraimites, 42,000. And they had this little test way of figuring out who was an Ephraimite and who, who wasn't, okay? Um, and they, they would make them say this word. They would make them say uh, Shibboleth. And if they couldn't say the word, then they knew that they were an Ephraimite. They would say Sibboleth, and they'd be put to death. I'm not sure totally what to do with this, but I think we can learn something from all of this portion right here. Let's just look at this right here. Six application points for us this morning. Uh, six flaws that we see in Jephthah, but we would rarely see in ourselves. Now, this is the place where the word of God becomes the mirror to us, okay? Because we're a lot like Jephthah. We have mixed motives like him, okay? We wrestle with the things that the culture presses in on us with today. And so the word of God's gonna be a mirror here in the next few minutes. I would encourage you to just make note of these, wrestle with these yourself. I'm not gonna spend much time on them. Here's the first thing, the first thing that we need to see. Impulsive decision-making. Am I a person who makes impulsive decisions? Um, do I make the decision, make my commitment without seeking the Lord? Here's the second thing. 
Jephthah was a guy that was a gentle abroad, but then he turns out to be a tyrant at home. Um, he, he's diplomatic with Ammon as they, as they negotiate through this and seek to find peace. And then he comes home and he's accused of not inviting the Ephraimites and he just goes right to battle with them. Dads, I want to speak to you right now. Is that what you're like? Are you gentle in your workplace and gentle around outsiders, but at home, do you rule your home with a fist of iron? Try to keep everybody right under your thumb. Do you do that and call it biblical leadership? Well, that's not exactly biblical leadership. That's not the model that Jesus laid down. Yes, the Bible does teach that fathers are to lead their home, but they're to lead out of humility, out of gentleness, out of example. Yes, the Bible does say that wives are to submit to their husbands, but it's never this idea of by force submit to your husband. It's always because I would want to submit to my husband because he loves me and he cares for me as Christ loved me. So I'm not gonna spend much more time here, but take the application for yourself. Jephthah's a guy that seems to be gentle um, when he's far abroad, but then he seems to be a bit of a tyrant at home. Third, Jephthah, we see this in him. He, He is a man who seeks God's glory. Yes, he's a man of faith. Hebrews 11.32 says he's, he's a person of faith. He's included in the hall of faith. Jephthah stepped up in faith to go to battle for the Lord. He's a man of faith, but then also he seeks God's glory, but then I also think we see him seeking a bit of his own glory and success here. Fourth, Jephthah's a, a guy that is ultimately willing to sacrifice everything at the altar of success. Are we like that? Men, again, dads? Are we willing to sacrifice so much just to be successful in this life, to have a name, to to work our way up the ladder, so to speak? Are we willing to lay aside our family, to even put our daughter or our son on the altar until it's too late? Fifth, I think we can see in Jephthah that there's a possibility that he was more influenced by culture than by God's word. And then last, I believe that Jephthah here in this passage, we see very clearly in some ways that he, that he clung to a misguided theology, that he believed that he had to earn God's favor through doing things, that he had to do, 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 give, 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 give in order for God to look on him favorably, and that is a misguided theology. That theology is empty. He was God's chosen man. He was God's appointed man. The spirit was already on him. If Jephthah hadn't offered that that vow that he made, would God have still been with him? Absolutely. From the get-go, the scripture makes that clear. It says that the spirit of the Lord was upon him. God was sending him out. God was going to give him victory. He was the deliverer. So why make the vow? Probably a misguided theology or presumption, pride, but we shouldn't be too harsh on Jephthah here. I came across this quote this week and I think it's really helpful and it was in relation to something else, but I think it applies here. Um, Listen, anybody can thrive under adversity, but give a man power and then you'll see what he's really made of. I think that's the truth for all of us. We can thrive under adversity, but when we're put in the seat of power, would we make better decisions? Would we be a better leader than what we see here in Jephthah? Listen, here's the third thing we've got to see this morning, and this is just, we're just going to say this and close. I think it's become obvious through the text. Point three, okay? Um, God, it's never too late to serve the Lord. Point one, we've got to be careful with our commitments. Point two, point three, God chooses to use imperfect people. Jephthah was a man. He was a man of faith, but he was a man of flaws, and God chose to use him. God chose to work through him. And listen, his name is recorded in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, as we would say. And so we can't say that this wasn't a man of faith. God used him to set the people free. But also we shouldn't overlook his flaws. But listen, you know, the whole book of Judges is not just about these judges who ruled for a little period of time imperfectly. The whole book of Judges is ultimately set for us in the Bible to point us to one who is so much better than all of these judges. It's to point us to the one supreme judge, the one who is king over all things. The book of Judges is here for us in the Bible so that we will see the failures and the shortcomings of every human leader And we will then set our eyes on the ultimate leader, on the ultimate one who can secure our freedom on the Son of God, on Jesus Christ. Listen, Jephthah, he misunderstood God's character. 
He thought that God's favor was something that needed to be bought or to be earned. But Jesus Christ comes to us and he says that God's favor is given to you by grace and grace alone. That's an awesome statement. It can't be bought, it can't be earned, it can't be achieved because it's given freely through the grace of Jesus Christ. In Jephthah, we see a man who is striving after a lot of things. And in Jesus Christ, we see a man who is striving after God's glory as number one in everything. In Jesus Christ, we see that we have been given forgiveness through the shedding of his blood on the cross. Jephthah longed to, for God to go and to give him power and to go with him. But in Jesus Christ, listen, we have been given God's power and God's presence. He is with us right now. We have him here walking with us every day, leading us in victory every single day. Listen, Jephthah longed to have victory over the Ammonites, an earthly enemy. But in Jesus Christ, we have eternal victory over sin, over the grave, over hell, over the devil. And everything that we read in the Old Testament is ultimately meant to point us to Jesus Christ. It's Christ, it's Jesus Christ that we look to and we worship and we set our eyes on. Now listen, I get that it's weird in a way to have communion right after you have a sermon on Jephthah. I get that. But ultimately the sermon's not about Jephthah, is it? I hope it's not. Jephthah is a flawed leader who at very best would act in faith but would fail. But Jesus Christ is the perfect leader. He is the real champion and the hero of the entire story. He is the champion, the one that we long for. He is the one that we need. And I just want you to think about this as we transition right now to communion. As we take you know, this story with all of its twists and everything that's in it, as we begin to then shift our eyes to Christ, the one who purchased our freedom through giving his life on the cross for us. As we begin to think about that, I want you just to hear the words of the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses one, four, and 12. I just wanna read these to you as we prepare for communion. Listen to this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. The law couldn't do that. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now catch this. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is why we worship today. We worship Jesus Christ today. We worship the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We don't celebrate a flawed hero this morning. We celebrate Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. And we remember that we aren't saved this morning because we've earned God's favor. We're saved this morning because Christ is God's favor upon us. And we praise God for that.